This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. By her own admission, Dr. Catherine Raven is more comfortable in nature than among people. The biologist, university lecturer, and former U.S. park ranger lives off the grid in the wilderness of Montana. Her prize-winning memoir, Fox and I, An Uncommon Friendship, tells the fascinating and moving story of her unexpected and transformative friendship with a wild red fox. It is both a hymn to empathy and a reminder that we share more than our habitat with our fellow creatures. The audiobook version is narrated by Stacey Glembowski. For 12 consecutive days, the fox had appeared at my cottage. At no more than one minute after the sun capped the western hill, he lay down in a spot of dirt among the powdery blue bunch grasses. Tucking the tip of his tail under his chin and squinting his eyes, he pretended to sleep. I sat on a camp chair with stiff spikes of bunch grass poking into the canvas. Opening a book, I pretended to read. Nothing but two meters and one spindly forget-me-not lay between us. Someone may have been watching us, a dusky shrew, a field mouse, a rubber boa, but it felt like we were alone with the world to ourselves. On the thirteenth day, at around 3.30 and no later than four o'clock, I bundled up in more clothing than necessary to stay comfortably warm and went outside. Pressing my hands together as if praying, I pushed them between my knees while I sat with my feet tapping the ground. I was waiting for the fox and hoping he wouldn't show. Two miles up a gravel road in an isolated mountain valley and 60 miles from the nearest city, the cottage was not an appropriate arrangement for a girl on her own. My street was unnamed so I didn't have an address. Living in this remote spot left me without access to reasonable employment. I was many miles beyond reach of cell phone towers, and if a rattlesnake bit me, or if I slipped climbing the rocky cliff behind the cottage, no one would hear me cry for help. Of course, this saved me the trouble of crying in the first place. I had purchased this land three years earlier. Until then, I had been living up valley, renting a cabin that the owner had winterized, in the sense that if I wore a down parka and mucklocks to bed, I wouldn't succumb to frostbite overnight. That was what I could afford with the money I'd earned guiding backcountry hikers and teaching field classes part-time. Catherine Raven, welcome to My Life in Books. It's so good to be here. In the clip, we heard your dilemma that foxes are wild animals and should shun human company. But we didn't really get a description of Fox. Could you describe him for us? What struck me the most was that he was so small. I later learned that he was the runt of the litter. He was mute, which is not that unusual for foxes that are runts to be mutes. But he never got any bigger size-wise, he was certainly smaller than a cat, a house cat. And I could tell his weight by looking at how much uh, imprint he left when he walked in the snow as compared to a cat that was walking over the same patch of snow. And Fox barely indents at all because he was so light. He was very, very scrawny, but he did have long hair. Because it's so windy here, the long hair would just blow all in one direction. And then you could see his tiny little body. But his hairs were five or six inches long. He was so beautiful. (laughs) He was uh, red and blonde. He had a lot of blonde hairs. And his downy fur, um, in when he had his winter down, was gray. So he had the short gray hairs and long, long, long red and blonde hairs. He had an unusual face in that I recognize it. I'm pretty bad with human faces. And sometimes when I first meet a class, everybody all looks the same to me for months and months. And sometimes I never learn the faces. But to this day, you can show me a picture. I tried it once with 
picture of a hundred foxes, I think someone sent me, I can look down them and tell that none of them are my fox. It all has to do with maybe the width of his eyes, the size of his ears, but I could read into his expression. So much of that involves his eyes. And the most important thing about his personality was that I really thought he wanted to matter in this world. I think he didn't just want to eat and sleep and make baby foxes. He wanted more than that from this world. And I think that's a pretty interesting personality trait that we tend to ascribe to only humans. But he definitely had that trait of wanting more from life, wanting to matter, wanting to leave a legacy. Now, you've used the word personality, and you are a scientist. You are supposed not to believe that wild animals, or really any animals, have personality. It, that's called anthropomorphization, and that is rather taboo in scientific circles, isn't it? And that's at the core of your dilemma. Yes, that's right. And what I learned was that I had to rethink and remind myself, what is science? Science is is a body of knowledge and it's a way of knowing. And that body of knowledge is knowledge that comes from the scientific method. And not all knowledge fits into that category. I learned to think of science after my relationship with the fox, after I had to reevaluate the role of science in my world, was that science is the brightest possible light that we can shed on our, on our observations of the world. But it's a narrow, narrow, narrow beam. But you can't see everything else when all you have is just such a narrow beam. So you have to widen your view of the world to see other things. And you can't see those other things just relying on science. You have to use intuition and belief systems and your gut feeling and your instincts, all of those things play a really important role in how we understand the world. It really undercut your self-esteem, I suppose. You are a trained scientist. You've got a PhD. And in some ways, that compartmentalized you, that made you look just through the prism of science. And by your own admission in the book, you didn't have the easiest of childhoods. You didn't have a nurturing upbringing. And that has left you feeling rather socially awkward. We could hear in that clip that you are questioning yourself. You are questioning the validity of your own intuition and your own observations. That's correct. And as far as questioning yourself. You know, it's lovely if you happen to have had a nurturing background. It gives you that self-esteem. And no matter what other kind of hardships you might have to deal with, you know that there's somebody behind you supporting you. Just having that support in your life when you're young, that gives you that that little bit of extra self-esteem. So I was missing all of that. And it made me very terrified and feeling very ostracized to begin with. I was just all by myself, both physically and emotionally. And then you add that to the problem that you have stated about my relationship with science, which was, I thought I was going to find my home there. And then <laughs> Fox come, my relationship with Fox made me realize that, wow, this is really kind of embarrassing. How can I really find a home in science without hiding what had become a very important relationship in my life. And and it's just too embarrassing for a scientist, especially someone studying wildlife, to admit not only do they believe that a fox has a personality, but that their best friend is a wild red fox. So yes, I think you put it really clearly that's that's a problem. You're you're out on your your own in the world with no emotional support and already the feeling that you're really a nothing and a nobody and you're never going to amount to anything. And then you get this PhD and you're in Sigma's eye. And uh, I find that science just isn't going to be as comfortable a support system for me as I thought it would be. 
because I just don't accept that view of anthropomorphism. The odd thing is that we are encouraged in many ways to anthropomorphize our pets and yet <laughs> to to believe that their wild cousins couldn't possibly have any form of personality or take enjoyment out of their lives. And, and that's a real disconnect. It is so odd. And I think it's one of the reasons why I cherish so much the opportunity that I had to have a relationship with a wild mm. animal. There is such a huge difference between a domestic animal, an animal that we own or license or leash, whether it's a pet or even if it's your livestock, for example, those animals, yes, we are encouraged to anthropomorphize them. And it's so very different with a wild animal. Not only are the laws different, as I found out when there was a wildfire, but also we are supposed to think of wild animals as beings that just eat and, and sleep and maybe fight and mate. And that's that's all that they do. And they don't have any hobbies or personalities or friendships and yet we we pretend like our domestic animals do. And I say pretend because I think they don't really understand them as well as I understood uh, Fox, because I was with him every day for years. And so that's, that's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the title of the book, Fox and I, that is the telltale phrase that you used and that you were well, laughed at by your students <laughs> for using, whereas had you said Fido and I because you had a pet dog, they wouldn't have thought twice about it. Yes, that's exactly it. I said that phrase Fox and I a little bit too often and they really keyed in on that. And oh my God, that was the big taboo. You can't have a Fox and I. <laughs> that can't. <laughs> that relationship cannot exist. And you're right. If I had said Fido, they wouldn't have blinked. You begin to realize that Fox is a special animal and has a special place in your life because for two weeks he turns up at roughly the same time of the afternoon and sits with you for an average of 18 minutes. And you increasingly interact with him. It's important to stress here that you're not feeding him, you're not trying to domesticate him, but you are interacting with him playing games of show and tell to start off with. Yes. And the fact that he was regular, had this schedule that I could count on, that is absolutely critical because I had had so many foxes on my property before and I've had so many after him. And I've had other animals here that I've tried to see how far along I can get that relationship. But unless they have a regular schedule, it's absolutely impossible because you can't possibly be outside 24 hours a day trying to connect with this animal. His scheduling, I think, was, I mean, he understood that that is what you do when you want to make a friend, when you want to have a relationship. You have to show up at the same time. You have to be reliable. And by him being reliable, uh, it, it, it allowed us to spend that time together. And then we got closer and he got used to my voice. As far as the show and tell, that's another aspect of his personality that I learned from that. He just didn't like to be bored. And so I was entertaining him, in other words. And that's what he liked about the show and tell, was that I was interacting with him, putting things down, little rocks, little feathers on my wooden steps and tapping them. And then I would move off and let him come and nose through them all. And he liked that. He liked being entertained. He was an animal that did not like boredom. He liked adventure. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's not a trait that every creature has, and it can be a dangerous trait, but he was able to seek adventure. And he liked fun as well. You eventually were getting down on your hands and knees, getting down to fox level, eye to eye level, and playing games of chicken with him. 
He would also sunbathe. And you observed that he collected trinkets and talismans that he would decorate his den with. So he had a sense of aesthetics. That's what I learned from the trinkets. And later I started noticing other things, the way that when the sky would come in the evening, when we would have those big washes of yellow and then the pinks and then the reds, all these colors that this is big sky country. So we can see from horizon to horizon. He would sit facing that way and enjoy the immense uh, changes in the light shows. But he collected things, as you said, talismans and things, um, just the same way that I do. And not all people are collectors, but I think that is probably a portion of his personality that's more common with a lot of homo sapiens. We tend to be collectors, but he collected things uh, because I think he liked them. And that was something really important that I learned about him. He also, you mentioned fun. He had more fun than I did Hmm. when I first met him. And he really got me thinking about reintroducing fun into my life. Um, Because, you know, he was an adult just like I was, and he wasn't giving up fun. He loved playing games and he made time for it in his life. And I suppose he could have spent more time hunting and eating more. As I mentioned, he was an awfully, awfully skinny little guy. Or he could have spent more time sleeping or more time just hiding from feral dogs and coyotes and such. But he liked to play chicken and he always won. We would try to stare each other down and see who um, backed off first. It's a game I play with deer, but deer, um, I often win when I play with deer, when I do a staring contest with them. But Fox uh, would uh, come closer and closer and closer, and then he'd bar his teeth, and then I would chicken out. (laughs) And and you could just see that he loved it. He loved winning. He just, he loved, he liked to play the egg game too. You would put out an egg for him and he would go and, well, play hide and seek with it. Yes, he would go and hide it. Um, I still find them every once in a while on my lawn. (laughs) None of them are anywhere near where he went, by the way. So he was so good at that. He was so sneaky. And he would leave diggings. I would finally find a digging. So I would think that's where the egg is. But he would just do that as a fake out. He was so good at playing games. Those are game things. Those are things you do when you're playing with people. You learn to fake them out and play hide and seek. And those are probably some of the most basic things that are part of human culture. We've probably been doing that for 100, 200,000 years. And we can't possibly believe that only Homo sapiens have that trait. It just doesn't make any sense. But before I met him, I would have thought, those are homo sapien things. We're the, we're the ones that play. But uh, I was wrong. Foxes definitely play. He played. And you teach genetics. And, and in the book, you point out that we share a large amount of our genetic material, our, our DNA, with other mammals. And one of the most striking passages of the book is when you were down on your hands and knees looking fox in the eye and you you realized that actually your eyes are the same distance apart as a fox is the difference between us is not so great no our dna is so much alike and it has to account for things like size and fur and teeth, those things that are very, very different. It can't possibly account for all of these uh, personality traits that we believe are associated with humans. But the eyes are really important. And I want to say something else about that. I would not have been able to have this relationship with him if it wasn't I think for the fact that our eyes are so similar, a human face and a fox face, even though they're so much smaller. But when you get down and you're face to face, you are actually eye to eye. Their eyes are 
almost the exact same size, the same spacing, everything. So you are able to relate to them. And and I'm not able to do that with the skunk that lives here, even though I, I can tell that skunk's not particularly afraid of me. But when you can see in another animal's eyes, that's really the beginning of empathy. Empathy is one of the words that chimes throughout the book. And another one is intuition. And at times I felt it really was an internal battle with you between science and intuition. Science rather frowns on intuition as not being quantifiable. But your intuition is that all the animals who surround the cabin that you have built in the middle of their territory are having to adapt themselves to this human and this building that's been landed in their midst. And they, whether they're magpies or voles or the fox, are having to change their habits because their habitat has been changed. And once you follow this intuition through, their behavior makes a lot more sense. Yes. And I became a lot more sensitive about my role as a human and my big footprint and that I had moved into their territory because much of this wildlife was here before Homo sapiens set foot on this uh, continent. So they were the first animals and realizing that I moved into their territory and they all related to me in some way because I took up so much space. I'm not that I'm a big person, but my house is way bigger than them. I mean, when you think of the size of a magpie and and a magpie nest is enormous, but it's not much bigger than my sink. (laughs) And my house is so much larger. I mean, it's only a cottage. It's, It's the size of a hobbit hole, really, compared to the way other humans live. But compared to the way non-human animals live, my abode is huge. So it changed the way the sun hit the ground. This little tiny cottage creates a new area of shade uh, on the property. Even something that small is a really big change. And that very much chimes with the message of the conservationist John Muir, how everything in nature is hitched to another part And when you realised that and started optimising your habits to work within your habitat, that also was a key to your being able to interact with less anxiety with other people, that you adapted your behaviour to suit the way you wish to interact with others. Yes, because I was mimicking the fox He seemed to be so happy and so settled. So he had this love of life. And I decided that you find your place, your optimum habit and your optimum habitat. And the important thing with interacting with other people is you find your optimum habits, the things that you want to do and find that satisfaction in yourself. And that gives you, then you're in your right place, your best place, and you go forth from there. And that really allowed me to to feel a lot more comfortable. Plus the fact that, you know, I said in the beginning, I guess uh, we we both talked about how I felt I, I was out in this world without any support. There was no family emotional support that was there for me. Suddenly the fox gave me also that self-esteem because he really cared about me. He really was my friend. He worried about me. I mean, when I was out gardening and I would see him stand on his hind legs and look in the window to see where I was. So it, uh, it, it really gave me a lot of self-esteem and that helped fit myself into the world and deal with other people. But knowing that I was in my best place, I think Choosing your habits just like an animal or a plant does, finding where you belong. Well, just like you, red, you're a climber, and that's your habit. That's your optimal place. And we find our sport from there. Absolutely. And you 
also resolve to live your life by verbs rather than nouns. Can you explain that? Yes, I was really filled with worry about what I needed to be now that I was a grown up and had this PhD. I needed to be a professor or scientist or writer or ranger. There were so many things that I was deciding among. And all the things that I was deciding were just nouns. They were just titles of things. And I kept thinking about the fox, which kept reminding me that I am really an animal. I'm a human animal and he's a non-human animal, but I am an animal. And maybe this pressure to be something that had a title that wasn't human nature. That was just my culture that I was in, but it's not part of human nature. So I started to think about nature and I realized that when I'm collecting plants professionally for herbarium collections, every plant has to be described as having a, a habit. And when biologists talk about other living things, animals, we always describe them as having habits, meaning what they do, the things that they do. Douglas firs, for example, they are loner trees and lodgepole pines, they grow in dog hair stands. Those are just two examples of how plants have different kinds of habits. You have to decide what you want to do. And I realized those are verbs. Instead of worrying about trying to label myself with a noun, let me think about some verbs and shoot for those. So I realized writing, tending land. I didn't need any particular title with that, but I liked tending land and I liked writing and I liked observing wildlife and speaking for wildlife. And maybe that means writing about them. Maybe it means talking about them. Maybe it means drawing about them. Maybe it means teaching about them. So those verbs then became the guiding desires of my life. And I ended up achieving those things. And you can achieve the things that you want in many different ways. And I think that people worry too much about trying to have a certain title. And sometimes that title might tie you down to a specific habitat. And it's not so great to be tied down to a specific habitat if you end up on the ocean and you're a mountain person. Humans need to choose our optimum habits, which are the verbs, and our optimum habitats. So figure out where you want to live and how you want to live. And those verbs are the hows. And I think that's something that is really chimed with readers in the post-pandemic world when so many of us have realised that as city dwellers, we are very divorced from the natural world. I mean, do you think that has contributed to the book's success? Why, why it is so popular amongst people? You're, you're absolutely correct. I think that when I was writing the book and told people about being verb, they would laugh and think it was, of course, a good idea. But it was something that only some odd single person like me uh, could think about. But COVID made it realistic for other people to stop and think about their habits and their habitats. And also, I think it's making people realize what what is our role in the world. I mean, COVID definitely stems from the fact that we're animals and we share viruses with other animals. So that that's very important. And I think people are setting their uh, desires a little bit differently. They're figuring out that maybe life is shorter than they thought, and they're realizing that there's too much loneliness. And when you start thinking about yourself as a living thing, as a part of the world, I really think it makes loneliness go away. It's not something that you can do overnight, but as you slowly work on feeling like you're part of the natural world, then you're accepted. There's that big community. Nature's a community and it accepts you. I really hope that the book has helped people shed a lot of that loneliness that COVID brought into their worlds. Well, certainly your 
unique and beautiful way of storytelling has contributed to the book's success and that is something that I'd like to explore further with you after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with natural philosopher Catherine Raven. Catherine, I hope you don't mind me using a noun to describe you, but I very much feel that you are a natural philosopher in the terms that they used to talk about it during the Romantic period. You believe that science and nature should coexist rather than be separated out into different silos. That's right. In the classic sense of what we used to call natural history, now you don't get degrees in natural history, you get degrees in biology. But in my mind, it was always natural history. And I'm glad you mentioned philosophy because when I was earning my PhD, the part of it that I really cared about was the P part. I just just cared about being in philosophy because I loved that discipline so much. And I loved the fact that you're integrating the natural world and the physical world and science and the natural world coming together, not that humans are better and that our particular way of knowing that we've invented the scientific method is better than understanding the world another way. I love natural philosophy. It's uh, just a lovely discipline that sort of started to fall by the wayside because it doesn't bring in as much money as uh, molecular biology does it. (laughs) Now, your first book was on forestry for middle grade children and very much you were aiming to get kids out of the classroom and exploring the world around them. And as we can hear from you getting down on your hands and knees to Fox level, that's the way that you discovered how Fox lives in a world where he's nearly two foot high, whereas we're between five and six feet high. Yes. And getting people outside and observing is so much different than just picking up the book and reading the book. But the way that sciences, natural sciences are taught today, you have to start with the book because they start with chemicals and cells, things that you can't really see with the naked eye, and then energy, which is theoretical. So you're not outside observing at all. It's completely different than the way things were taught 200 years ago. And I I really wish kids would get back to observing with their eyes, being outside. And my students do, because that's what I encourage them to do. But I teach it, you know, these are college students. And in amongst your scientific observations, you also use your powers of storytelling to imagine what Fox is feeling, to paint the picture of the community around you. And that your storytelling is something that is absolutely integral to you teaching these postgraduate students when you take them out into the wilderness to observe nature. Storytelling is so important to me. And, you know, it's not in Fox and I, but I will say that when I was teaching a graduate course on water resource management, I assigned the Grapes of Wrath because I felt that you couldn't understand man's relationship with water without reading that book, that it was the best book ever for explaining that. There's a lot of textbooks explaining water chemistry. I mean, we used Luna Leopold's classic book on river management. So we learned from scientists the things that scientists could teach us, but science can't teach the way that humans feel, that primal feeling we have about water. And during the um, Great Depression and the Dust Bowl days here, when water disappeared, and of course, Grapes of Wrath is a novel, people went insane. But he explains it over this big, long book, how entire families were uprooted and how people 
well, it's a kind of a love. I mean, people's bodies are mostly water and we can't really get away from that love of water. But anyway, Steinbeck is a storyteller and sometimes you need stories to tell the full picture. But I need to say something else about storytelling, which is, and I know we're going to talk about the books that really resonate with me and my favorite books. And every single one of them is told by a storyteller. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's very fashionable these days for novels to be written in first person. And so someone's telling you the story. Um, Maybe it's a 12-year-old girl, but there's a character, a girl, a boy, an old person, but they're not storytellers. A real storyteller is the person telling the story in third person, the omniscient storyteller. And for some reason, those are the novels that I love the most. And you very much bring in the books that have resonated with you, that have helped you learn some of these universal truths, one of which actually is from the Romantic period, as we were discussing before, and at that fracture point between science and nature. And that's Frankenstein. And and Victor Frankenstein, in many ways, faces that dilemma himself. Which direction is he going to go? I'm really glad you pointed that out, because most people they just don't like Victor Frankenstein. And I don't think that Mary Shelley wanted us to like him, but, you know, writers just don't have that much control once they put their (laughs) book out there in the world. And I really just liked him so much because I understood the dilemma that he had. He loved nature. He loved the mountains. He loved the subalpine world that his parents brought him to. I think that in Switzerland, he loved all the same things that I loved. But then he just got stuck, trapped, really, when he started studying Um, He wanted to make the world a better place. He wanted to study the living world, but his professors kind of led him down that path to the physical world, and he just got uh, trapped, poor thing, and he didn't have a mentor, and he made mistakes, but he was on the same cusp trying to figure out how much support to put on his own intuition. And if he had laid on his own more, he wouldn't have ended up Uh, creating a monster that murdered people. Yeah, he's very much a victim of of silo mentality or compartmentalization, isn't he? Yes, yes, he is. He's a victim of that for sure. Another literary figure who features in Fox and I is Ishmael from Moby Dick. And whereas he says that for him, the ocean was his Harvard, I suppose that for you, the wilderness has been your Yale in many ways, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I, I just love Ishmael so much. I can still picture myself at my Three Lakes cabin reading that book. And um, he really, I really did think of him as a friend, as somebody that I knew so very well. And I loved the way that he said, you don't have to go really to an institution in a big city, you can learn just as much uh, being in in whatever habitat you want. And of course, his habitat, wilderness, water wilderness. Mine was a terrestrial wilderness. That's so important for people listening today to know. And the book that really sits at the centre of Fox and I is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's Little Prince. There are many parallels that one can draw, not least that Saint-Exupéry had a very close relationship with foxes. Yes, and that was a coincidence. I did not realise that when I met Fox. And then I started reading The Little Prince. And when I got to the part about the fox, of course, then it becomes really obvious that even though it's fiction, he knew an awful lot about foxes. He knew that they could establish relationships with humans, and he had certainly must have had a relationship with a fox. And then from there, of course, I read his memoir, Wind, Sand, and Stars. And in Wind, Sand, and Stars, I was so shocked to find out what an enormous role wild foxes had played in his life when he thought he was dying in the desert when his airplane crashed. And he actually uh, 
put his head down by their den and and talked to them and said uh, that he was grateful for their comfort in his dying hours. And fortunately, he did not die. He was rescued. But he chose friendship with a fox uh, rather than trying to, you know, kill one and satisfy his, his thirst and his hunger. So it's just his relationship with foxes is really amazing. But um, he's one of my heroes, of course. And the little prince points out that the only true way of seeing is with our hearts. Anything else creates a prism through which we regard our surroundings. And that's very much akin to your way of relying on intuition. Yes. I learned so much from the little prince is so filled with wisdom. And that quote that you said is one of my favorite ones in the book. And that's related to also what the little prince tells us as far as, you know, the importance of intuition is is just something that I've really learned and really want readers to take away from my book. He also said, those of us who understand life don't really care very much about numbers. And that's the same thing. He's saying, quit getting uh, overcome with this idea that we have to quantify everything. Uh, that if you can't quantify it, it doesn't matter. I'm, and sometimes I find myself having to remind my students that in a teasing way, because of course I am a biology professor and I do have to care about numbers, but they they have a certain place and it's a limited place. But intuition is so much more uh, important. We have to rely on that. And numbers are much less important than people think they are. Now, as you say, all the books that really chime with you are books with narrators. And your own book is brought beautifully to life as an audiobook by Stacey Glembowski, I know it was very important for you that the voice of the book, the tone of the book, should not be too omniscient. Did, <laughs> yes. There's a reason for that, and, uh, and I know that that informed your choice of narrator. Yes, and I really liked Stacey's voice a lot. And so, um, because my book was specifically addressing the issue of nature and science, it was so important for people not to feel like nature had this voice, right? <laughs> that was like this god or this goddess um, kind of a voice. And I really wanted it to be more playful because that's how. I feel about nature. I don't think nature is this mother nature who's there um, above us. I think that we are it. We're part of it. We are nature. And so we want to uh, treat it more casually. And that, I just love the way that she handled that. Yeah, very much. I mean, you felt that the natural habitat was a little bustling community and you were at the centre of it through her narration. Yes. Yes. A little bustling community. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. That's perfect. Fox and I is obviously nonfiction, but I know from when we have spoken in the past that you not only love fiction, but write it as well. Can we expect a Catherine Raven novel in the next few years? Yes, I hope sooner than a few years. And um, <laughs> then there will be an owl who, of course, doesn't speak, but there'll be some sections from the owl point of view. But an owl changes somebody's life. And it takes place in the Pacific Northwest. And it's about halfway done with a pretty good draft right now. So I'm pretty excited about it. I love my characters. And also it is a bustling little community. And also it's in third person, which is the voice that I really like. You can pan away uh, and let the audience see a big wide view. And then you get really close. So the audience really is in the mind of, of your protagonist. And setting is really important to me. So you get to see the trees and the insects and the mammals and the birds and the flowers that live in this area in the, in the forest in the Pacific Northwest. Well, I do hope that when it's published, you'll come back onto the show to discuss it. But before I let you go this afternoon, let's round off the show with the books of your life. So, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? 
I have to say The Hobbit. I love J.R. Tolkien for what he did to the the world. He's he's changed the lives of so many of us because he is a storyteller and he created a world. That is one of the most important things a storyteller does is create a world for us to step into. And he did that. And he had the characters that we loved. And he had the themes, the love of adventure and loyalty and fighting the good fight and overcoming temptation. And I will never stop loving The Hobbit. And I don't understand why I keep hearing, well, there weren't any stories with people that looked like me when I was growing up. So I had to to write a book with someone who looked like me. And I keep thinking, but that never dawned on me ever when I was a kid. We wanted to read stories about people who thought like us, who acted like us, who interested us. Nobody in The Hobbit looks like me. Nobody in The Hobbit looks like anybody who read The Hobbit, right? None of us us have big, hairy feet. Um, And even though I'm a really small person, I still don't have big, hairy feet. Um, I don't read books about people who look like me. I'm interested in people who feel like me. And so I feel really bad that people keep using that phrase because I feel like they're going to stop reading The Hobbit. Is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, I have a kind of a new one, but only because I just reread it for the third time this month. And it's a pretty old book called The Shipping News by E. Annie Prue. She won the Pulitzer Prize for this book. And, you know, it's probably not unusual to you that I like cold places. So this is Newfoundland. And she talks a lot about that setting so that you don't feel like the book takes place in an elevator. And I do read a lot of books like that. They're very much plot driven. And sometimes I even finish them where I'm just part of the way through the book. And I feel like, are we in an elevator? There's not even a fly. I mean, how can you have a book with no animals and no plants and no sun and no clouds? But her book is very much about this beautiful setting, but I curl up with it on a, on a rainy day because it's a positive book. And of course, it's melancholy. It starts out sad, a character that had no support at all, no support even not just from his family, but in his case, also from school. And and then he goes on to make his own family, and then there's no support even from his wife. So he's just kind of a loser at middle age. And it ends up on just such a positive note because he finds his habit and his habitat And it's so positive and so wonderful. And Annie Prue is just a a wonderful, award-winning writer. And she was living in Newfoundland when this was written, so maybe that's why the setting is so wonderful. Yeah. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Probably because I live in Montana, I have to read Frederick Bachman. But I will say he's amazing. So he is um, Swedish. So of course, the cold, again, the same kind of uh, climate. But really, I picked up Frederick Bachman's The Winners, and it is the third in a series, but I didn't read the other two. I just started with The Winners, and I thought, this will be good because I, I like reading books that take place in other parts of the world and learning about other places. But actually, the book is just about Montana, <laughs> even though it's about <laughs> it's about Sweden. But if you just change the people's names, it, it would be like Montana. It's a small community in the forest and everybody elk hunts. <laughs> everybody goes hunting. And there's a city mouse and a country mouse theme that runs through the, the books. And it's this wonderful bustling community with all kinds of characters. And it's it's a real life, just like the shipping news and The Hobbit has to be a little melancholy, but overall joyful. So it's not a negative book with lots of violence. And he's funny and there's lots of wisdom and the wisdom doesn't take him a whole page. The wisdom is just like a sentence or two here and there. And there's all kinds of families in the book, the mediocre ones and great ones and terrible ones. And he makes the point that he doesn't know how a kid would survive in this world without a good family. 
And bad things happen to some of the kids and the ones with the good families make it and the ones with the bad families don't. But um, that's this little bit of wisdom. But it's a beautiful book if you're not afraid of reading about a place where it snows every day. And, um, <laughs> and of course, the, the big sport is ice hockey. So um, it's, it's about people that kind of live on their skates and hunt and drive pickup trucks and love each other very much. And again, it's third person. So he's the storyteller and his characters are lovely. I think um, you can't go wrong with Frederick Bachman, but I like this, this one, The Winners. I think it's his most recent book. Dr. Catherine Raven, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with us today and for giving us a better understanding of the natural world that we live in through your beautiful book, Fox and I. Oh, it's been such a joy to talk to you. You know, when I first met you, I was still in my introvert phase and just um, the Fox and I has been out now for a while and I have grown into realizing, I think I might be a closet extrovert. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been great. And also your love of adventure is just so wonderful. And you certainly are a hero to a lot of people. Thank you so much for being that. We need that today. It's time to turn the page on another episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Catherine Raven, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next show, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or check out our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.